You are listening to a message by Refuge Community Church. Refuge exists to glorify God by making disciples that shape their communities with the love of Jesus. How you doing? All right, that was slightly better, and I appreciate the bit of increased effort on that go-around. Hey, uh, good afternoon. I pray you're well today. Thank you. Uh, everyone who was able to, to adjust your schedules and to join us tonight, uh, we deeply appreciate it. As uh, we've already mentioned in other communication, but I want to make sure I say it now so that we, we got it right. This is not going to be an every week thing due to a scheduling error with Holiday in. Uh, we had to adjust this week, but next week we'll be back at the hotel back at 1030 a.m. Okay, sound good? Now, for this week, let's go ahead and jump into our time in the Word. We're going to be continuing uh, our series called Revision. And what this uh, whole sermon series is really about is, is helping us build a vision for our lives as we continue in uh, to 2022. Uh, what do you hope and want God to do in your life, right? Uh, who do you hope to be by year's end? Uh, how do you hope to grow? And, and really, what do you need to do to get there, to get to this vision you have for your life and, and for this year and all that good stuff. And that last question, what do you need to do to get there, is at the root of our, ter- of our sermon today. Here's why. Because as we build our, our vision for our life, um, we, we tend to envision this ideal version of ourselves, right? We're confident. If you're anything like me, you're a few pounds lighter. Uh, you have better relationships, uh, a more satisfying home life, a more satisfying work life. Maybe you have a better work-life balance, and though you're feeling good about that, we envision a, a version of us that's that's just different, almost holistically, than the version that we oftentimes are today. Uh, almost a version that you could describe as new, a new us. And so we start trying to become that person, right? We grab onto this idea and we think, all right, I need to start changing. I'm going to go for a run. I tried to go for a run several times since the New Year's. I've had varying degrees of success on that run, but, but you start trying to go after it. Start trying to get it and make the changes you need to make in order to get there. And, and our culture really responds to this idea making the changes you need to get there, right? Uh, That's why shows like Queer Eye on Netflix are so incredibly popular, right? The show that follows six people from the LGBTQI community as they seek to help a person every episode build a new life. This past season was here in Austin, if y'all didn't know, right? There's a lot of media around it. And, And often to do this, uh, the, the, the crew helps out this person, uh, make substantial, they help them make substantial changes in their life, right? Changes in their clothes, in their living situation, in their diet, sometimes in their hygiene, uh, all kinds of stuff, right? And, and almost each week, they, they try to tackle some type of trauma or some type of issue that that person may be working through and make some changes there. And we're led to believe that by the end of the episode, by this week that they've spent uh, with the Queer Eye crew, that they're going to be like brand spanking new. Right, it's going to be a brand new person, and so they even gather around this TV and they watch this event that they've planned unfold, and they cheer the person on. and And while those changes, hear me, are often helpful, and hear me, they also are often beautiful. I don't want to diminish the changes and the help that they actually can provide people. That last idea is the one that often lets us down. That last idea that if we just change some things around us. If we just change a couple of things in our life, then all of a sudden we'll be new. All of a sudden we'll be free. 
Because if we're being real, I can change my clothes. I can change my diet. I can change my house. I can even change my mindset. But it doesn't necessarily change who I am. And just as important, hear me, it doesn't free me from the consequences of who I am. The consequences of who I've been. Right. Who I've hurt, the mistakes I've made and the guilt, the shame, the embarrassment that often comes with those realities doesn't doesn't change those things. Doesn't free me from that. Right. Those are the things that often still haunt us. In fact, one way you can oftentimes come face to face with this feeling is when you see someone from your past. Right. I don't know if you've had this experience. But, but your boy has a backstory. And so I've had this, this experience quite a few times in my day where maybe you see someone from your past, someone that you've hurt, maybe someone that's hurt you, or maybe just someone that's seen you in your days, all right? And, and while we've changed, they're still the same, right? So maybe we seem to be different, but they're still the same. And it's easy in that moment to feel like we're acting in front of them, in front of them if we're not careful, right? We, we may have different clothes. We may have a new job. We may have a new set of friends, one of which maybe they are not a part of. Um, we may have changed so much about ourselves and we tell ourselves, these things make me different. These things make me different fundamentally. They make me new. They make me free. But if If we're not careful, in reality, we're just the same person with different clothes, with different friends, with a different house, and a different car. In those those moments, oftentimes, when we're face-to-face with that person from our past, we, we know that something must still be the same because at the end, we're still wrestling with the same shame, embarrassment, guilt that we've always wrestled with. We just had done a good job of outrunning it for a little bit. But hear me, that's not the vision God's word has for the followers of Jesus. Jesus invites us not to feel new, but to be new. He doesn't invite us to play free. He invites us to be free. Oh, it's five o'clock because I I said something good there, if I'm being 100% honest, because that's good news. That Jesus doesn't call us to play free, but to be free. But it doesn't just happen. Like all good and beautiful things, newness and freedom don't just happen. And for the Christian, the door by which we enter into newness and freedom is not an easy one for many of us. It's not an easy one for a lot of us because it's through the door of confession and repentance. Right? It's through the door of confession, acknowledging being vulnerable about our shortcomings and failures, and repentance, sincerely asking for forgiveness and turning away from that life. I would go so far as to say that for Christians, confession and repentance are the backbone to the new life of joy and freedom that we desire. I want you to hear me say that again because I want you to try and internalize that. Write it down if you're taking notes or just memorize it if you have a spectacular memory, right? For Christians, confession and repentance are the backbone to that new life of joy and freedom that we desire. But as I mentioned, this sounds simple, but it can be difficult. It can be hard. It's one of those things that we can know, we can hear about almost every single week. And if you're working in some devotional, maybe one from Paul Tripp, because I know a lot of you are, he talks about this idea all the time, yet it seems like every single day we can know it, but just never really implement it. And therefore never truly know the experience of joy and freedom that Jesus offers us, friends. But today, what I want for us to do is to look at the idea of confession and repentance. 
right? And, and through that, to wonder how God might use this humble and simple act to change our lives and to make that self that we envision that's free and new and, and confident and maybe 10 to 15 pounds lighter, right? To not make that a pipe dream, but to make that a reality. Because I don't think it has to be a pipe dream. But what it takes to get there, again, the doors we have to, to walk through to get there are oftentimes not easy and a bit challenging. And so to do this today, to take a look at confession and repentance, we're going to be in Psalm 51, as we already read. And, and in this time, I want to break down this text into four parts. Okay, It's going to be a lot of words here, but I want you to just try to process it with me. The first part is the consequences of our sin. Right, the consequences of our sin. Our sin is very real, and the consequences of that sin are very real. And the next thing is, is the humility of our confession. Right? What does humble confession look like, and what does it do? Right? And then the third thing is the hope of our forgiveness. Right? Once we're in that vulnerable spot of confessing, what do we actually have to hope in at that point? And the last thing that we're going to look at is the joy of our salvation. Again, I know a lot of things to work through there, but but I promise we're not going to be here too long, and I promise that they're going to make sense, and I think at the end they'll come together nicely. Now, for the sake of time, let's go ahead and just jump in and start. We're going to start with verses 1 through 2, Psalm 51, 1 through 2. You can read it on the screen with me. It says, be gracious to me, God, according to your love, your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. Okay, if, if you will join me, I need to say a quick prayer over really just myself and us together as we, as we jump into this word and invite God to transform us. Invite God uh, to connect with us and, and to begin to shape us as, as we explore these words together. Okay, pray with me fast. Father, thank you so much for, again, this time. Empty me of whatever I have going on in my own personal spaces, my own personal mind, God. Just allow us to connect with you here today. Humble our hearts, allow us to receive what you would have and shape and transform us according to the promises that you've given us through your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, hey, as we get started, uh, we need to jump into the context uh, of these verses because it's really important for this week. Uh, it really adds to the emphasis of what's, what's going on here. Uh, as many of you know, these verses are David's song of repentance after his greatest failure. Uh, the assault of Bathsheba, the abuse of his own power, his own adultery that ultimately leads to him murdering Uriah, uh, the Hittite who was a member of his army, all of which can be found in 2 Samuel 11. It's a tragic, sad, and if we read it with very real eyes, an infuriating story uh, that shows the complacency of a man once described as being after God's own Heart. The, the Bible desires to be so clear about David's actions here that the last verse in 2 Samuel 11 actually says that God saw what David did and he saw it as evil. I want you to hear that again, not as wrong, but that his actions were pure evil. And after being caught during a time where David was waiting for the judgment that was to come from his actions, he actually pins this psalm confessing and repenting of his evil doing. And it's in these first two verses, as he begins to write this psalm, that we get this explicit introduction into, I want to make sure you hear the, the, the little uh, asterisks I put on this, the personal consequences of our sin. Obviously, these are not all the consequences of our sin that, that are listed off in these two verses. 
I mean, a woman was abused. Her husband was murdered. In fact, later on in the story, a child will die. There are more than just these consequences that take place as a result of David's sin. But David helps us in these first two verses uh, get a little bit of insight into the heart of the guilty. And, And that's what I want us to see. In these first two verses, David gives us a little bit of insight into the heart of the guilty. In verse 1, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. In verse 2, he says, Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. In reality, the language that David is using here helps us see two personal consequences. The first is that our sin is rebellion against God. Right, that our sin is rebellion against God. David is asking for mercy and grace when it comes to his explicit rebellion towards God's love for people and God's overall beautiful design for the world. Right, This is definitely, and I want us to grasp this here, and I want us to hear this because this is not how we always see our sin. There are times when we know, like, man, I messed up. That was definitely against God. But most of the time, it feels like this isn't how we see it. Right, it's easy for us to see road rages as fairly like there's no victim to that crime, if that makes sense. Right, or maybe as, as bickering with someone we love is rather inconsequential because we're just going to make up at the end of it. Yet in reality, these moments are rebellion against how God has designed the world. Right, the rebellion against God's way of love. Right, we're guilty of rebellion against the king of the world, but But there's another personal consequence that I want to make sure we we catch here because some of us have probably heard this before. And while, of course, it's important, there's another one that that David highlights. And and that's that in verse 2, he asked God to completely wash away his guilt. And the language here, the wording really speaks to his conscience. Right? Right? That internally, he knows he's done wrong. And his conscience now is eating away at him. He doesn't feel worthy to worship or praise God anymore. He maybe doesn't even feel worthy to be in God's presence. And that's what fuels words like, God, don't take your spirit from me. Right? This feeling of unworthiness that a seared and, and, and guilty conscience can inflict on us. Right? The reality when, when we know we've done something wrong and we're riddled with guilt and we, we feel like hiding. Right, We feel like hiding from God. We feel like hiding from others. To be real, if we're being honest, we feel, if we could, like hiding from ourselves. You, you know this feeling. If you're being honest with me and I'm being honest with you, we know this feeling. Right? We've been wrestling with this feeling since our, our first parents, Adam and Eve, hid from God in the garden in Genesis. Right? You just don't want to show face because you know what you did was wrong. This reminds me of an experience I had as a young man. Right? And some of y'all know this about me, but when I was uh, 12 years old, I was arrested for possession of drugs at my school. I was in middle school. Um, and it was just, it was ridiculous, man, because I thought I was so cool walking around school with this stuff, right? Just being a fool. I thought I was so cool. But in the middle of the day, like fourth period, I was sitting and it was art class. And in the, 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 the doorway to the classroom, you know how school doors are all wooden? They have that one big long window just right where the handle, right above the handle. I saw the principal's face just appear in that bad boy and look directly into the classroom. And he pinpointed me out and he, he gave me one of these right here. And then he opened the door and looked and said, uh, Mrs. So-and-so, I'm gonna need you to excuse Josh. I need to speak to him. And in the, at that moment, y'all, I knew what it was. I was like, dang, I'm cooked, right? He, he, he walked me to the office, but he was like, can you walk in front of me? Because he knew, I was like, man, my man's gonna try something. So, so I, I knew like, man, there's nothing I can do. 
I'm cooked and I still had the stuff on me like an idiot. And so all this happens, right? And we go into the office and, and to cement it, I see all the other guys that were involved. They're all in the office too. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. So he pulls me in. He starts talking to me. He says, I'm gonna give you one chance. If you have anything, I need you to put it on the table. If you don't, we're gonna search you and we're gonna search your locker and that's gonna be worse for you. And so I was like, all right, whatever, man. So I put it on the table. Uh, they, they, they start single filing, uh, arresting us and walking us outside. And as I was getting walked out of the school building, the lunch bell rang and all the kids started flooding out into the middle of the hallway. And here I'm getting escorted out in handcuffs. And on the way to the police station with all the hoopla that had gone on and, and being in front of the other kids and all the pressure, I had honestly yet to think of the fact that there was no way I was going to get out of telling my parents about this. And when the thought hit me in the back of the police car, I slumped in my chair in a way that I don't think I've slumped in a chair since. I just wanted to disappear. I wanted to die. In that moment, I would have done absolutely anything to get away because I knew I was wrong. I knew I was guilty. I knew I had violated everything they had taught me and really violated the better conscience in me that was saying, this isn't a good idea, but just doing it anyway. I knew it. I didn't feel worthy to be their son. I didn't feel clean. I felt foolish. I felt dirty. In reality, I felt stupid. And here's the thing. That's how we can feel when it comes to guilt. When we're riddled with guilt, shame or embarrassment or all three with feelings of unworthiness. And we just want to hide. We just want to get away. We just want to get out of sight. And here's why this is important. Here's why I'm spending a second here. Because how we respond in this moment means everything to how we'll experience God in this moment. When you're wrestling with these feelings of feeling foolish, dumb, stupid, guilty, embarrassed, shamed, whatever. How you respond in that moment means everything to how you'll experience God in that moment. If in our minds he's the disappointed parent, the harsh judge, right, the angry authority figure, we tend to hide. We tend to run. We tend to get out of dodge. That seems to be our natural inclination as human beings. But if we see him as compassionate, loving, merciful, gracious, that that fuels a much better response. It fuels humility and confession. That's actually what we see up next, right? This is is where we get our second point, the humility of our confession. Check out verses 3 through 6 in Psalm 51. It says, for I am conscious of my rebellion. And my sin is always before me against you and you alone. I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you were right when you pass sentence. You were blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self and you teach me wisdom deep within You see, David understands first and foremost, even though the other feelings are trying to creep in, he responds to those feelings with an understanding that God is gracious and loving and desires to help him. Right, that's what he fights those feelings with. And from that reality, David begins to confess wrongdoing to God. In other words, and I want you to hear me here, David begins to take responsibility for his actions. David begins to take responsibility in his actions. He even says in verse four, it's against you and you alone that I have sinned. Now to make a quick point here to try and clear the air. This isn't saying that the only person that that deserves David's repentance is God. 
right? I mean, you look at the landscape of what's happening here. It's clear that David owes some brokenness and some repentance to several people. That'd be ridiculous. But, but rather that God is so intimately connected to his creation that when you sin against people, you sin against God because of his deep love for people. I want you to hear what I said again, that what it's really referring to is that God is so intimately connected and in love with his creation that when you sin against people, you sin against God because of his love for people, right? So, so not only does, does David take responsibility for his actions toward Bathsheba or Uriah, but as a consequence, he recognizes God's deep love for people for his creation across the board, people, animals, trees, the whole nine, and recognizes in my violation of these people, I have violated against you. I take responsibility to the fact that I hurt them, but by way of that, Father, I recognize that I've hurt you. I take responsibility for that. This is huge. This is huge, y'all, because in reality, this is the biggest challenge for most of us, simply taking responsibility. Right. This is hard for a lot of us. We're so convinced that God is going to judge us, that our worth is going to plummet, that our status is going to falter. Right. That the picture of who we are in our minds that we've built up over the years or maybe over the months or whatever the case is, is going to break and crack. Insert your insert your fear. Right. We're so scared of that, that the idea of taking responsibility for our actions against uh, creation, against people, even against God is terrifying. It's terrifying. But the reality is, friend, let me, let me challenge you and encourage you all at the same time. We can't escape it. No matter how hard we try, the evidence of it will always be in front of us. The evidence of our guilt and our sin will always be in front of us, no matter if we acknowledge it or if we don't. Right? That, that's, why, that's what David means when he says, my sin is ever before me. Right? It's always in front of me. We can try and talk our way out of it. We can go through logical just loopholes to try and, right, try and logic our way out of feeling guilty, but, but the reality is that it will always make itself known. Right? Whether it's the subtle undertone of anger or resentment between you and someone else, whether it's legal troubles, whether it's financial troubles, right? whether it's the physical consequences of our actions and choices, it will always be there to greet us. Let me give you an example. Most of y'all know my son, Jude. Um, and he's just a ball of energy. If you've ever seen him in, in, in action, right, most people look at him like, whew, because he's, he's, just, he's just nonstop. And the thing is, combined with that, he's extraordinarily strong and agile for a kid his age, right? Like we took him to the park, or I took him to the park the other day, and, and he got from, he's two, and he got from one monkey bar to the next monkey bar by himself, I was astonished. The lady there was like, that's a strong boy. And I was like, yeah. Um, He's a challenge. He's tough. And combine that with being too and curious about everything and just kind of the two-year-old propensity not to listen to anything. Again, things can get pretty difficult. And he can put himself into dangerous situations. Or he can just put himself into destructive situations, right? Things that aren't maybe harmful to him, but are just annoying and difficult and all that type of good stuff. And either way, because of all this, my wife and I oftentimes find ourselves having to grab him quickly and sometimes grab him forcefully, 
right? And while I can't speak from my wife, from myself, there are times when I grab him out of protection, right? My man is doing something extraordinarily not wise because he's two years old and he doesn't know how strong he is and where he's at. And he's about to get himself in trouble. So I grab him and I yank him and I just want to get him to safety and get him away from the thing that's dangerous. But there are also times where I grab him like that simply because I'm frustrated and I'm angry. And he's doing something that I know you ain't going to clean that up. I'm going to clean that up. My wife is going to clean that up. Maybe even your sister's going to clean that up. Regardless, it, it's happened enough, this action of grabbing him, uh, that if I move too quickly, right, his way sometimes, he kind of winces. He kind of goes, kind of prepares himself. Now, don't worry, all right? I, I want to make sure that you know he's not scared of getting beaten. In fact, I, we didn't even spank our kids, and all my minorities were like, what? So we didn't even spank our kids anymore, so he's not concerned about that. But, but regardless, he knows that part of me now. Right? He knows that if I'm frustrated and I'm angry, that I can react and, and reach out real quick and grab him and pull him near. And now he knows that. He winces when he sees me do a certain thing. Friends, whether I choose to acknowledge it or ignore it, my sin is ever before me. I may be able to sit him down and say, oh, son, you know, I was just trying to protect you. I was just trying to make sure this or that. I was trying to make sure this or that. But there will come a day when even he looks at me and says, but what I was doing wasn't wrong. You were wrong. My sin is ever before me. The question in that moment is not whether it's there or it's not, whether I'm guilty or whether I'm innocent. The question is whether I'm going to take responsibility for it or I'm not. That's the question. And for you, the question applies as well. It's not whether you're guilty or you're innocent. You're guilty. It's not whether your sin is there or it's not. It's there. The question is whether you're going to take responsibility for it or you're not. It will remain there if you don't. But when we take responsibility for it, something terrifying happens. But that terrifying thing is also beautiful. When we take responsibility for it, we realize that we can't absolve ourselves. doesn't matter what logical loops I get through to try and convince myself it wasn't that bad. It, it's, it doesn't matter what I try to do. When we start to acknowledge and take responsibility for it, something terrifying happens is we realize we can't absolve ourselves. We can't magically make it go away. And while self-forgiveness is important, I, I, I want you to hear me, self-forgiveness is important, it takes something far greater to produce real freedom and real change. But that's where the hope of our forgiveness is actually found, friend. It's when we start to confront that scary idea that our hope for being forgiven is actually found, right? Check this out in verse 7 through 12. In verse 7 through 12, David says, Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all of my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. David approaches God not just to confess 
to the merciful God that he knows, but to ask him in hope and anticipation for forgiveness. There's a difference. He doesn't just start rattling off words and and being self-deprecating. He confesses in hopes and in anticipation that God will respond in forgiveness. This is at the root of repentance. The posture to not just humbly take responsibility, but to genuinely ask for forgiveness from those you've transgressed against. Right? Not the least of these, God himself. And in these words, to sincerely ask, God, change me. Make me different. I don't want to be who I am, who caused this thing to happen. I want to be different. I want to be new. I can't absolve myself and I can't change myself, but you can forgive me and you can make me new. And so here I am, bare and exposed. Shape me, transform me, chisel away. That's the posture of repentance. It's the hope we have that God will respond and say, you're forgiven. Just settle in my hands. And we're going to do some work together. And friends, this is where the frightening lie that tells us that we'll lose everything if we're truly known and truly exposed is met with the glorious truth of a gracious God that desires to shower even the most beaten up by guilt and shame with grace and mercy and love. Right, this, I want you to hear that again. This is where the lie that we'll lose everything if we're truly exposed is met with the glorious truth that God desires to shower us with grace and love. It's the moment of forgiveness uh, where the freedom that we're longing for actually starts to become the freedom that we have, not just that we aspire to. Right, it may look different than we thought. It may be a little more painful than we thought, but it's genuine and it's real and it's whole, right? This is where the actual freedom, the actual newness that we desire and that we aspire to and that we envision for our lives, this is where it starts. This is where it starts. I love the way Tim Keller says it in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. And you've probably heard this quote before. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. This is why David can declare in the end, God, restore the joy of your salvation. Notice he didn't say, God, save me. But that in this forgiveness, restore the joy of the salvation you've already promised to give me. Not because of my worthiness, despite your holiness, but because of your love, despite my guilt. Not because of my worthiness, despite your holiness, but because of your love, despite my guilt. Friends, David may not have known how the promise would be fulfilled in that moment, but God did. God forgives David and now today extends that same forgiveness to us because he knew what he'd accomplish in the work of Jesus. That the life Uriah had taken from him would be found in this Jesus. That the husband Bathsheba had robbed from her and ultimately longed for would be found in this Jesus. And that the forgiveness David needed would be found in this Jesus. How? 
How could all that happen and be provided by this one single dude? Because when God sees us, he doesn't see the failures of our past nor the failures of our future, but he sees the perfection of Jesus. When Jesus enters into the fray of our brokenness, he doesn't do it in order to condemn the hurting and the broken and the guilty. No, he sees the guilty hiding in shame and he gives himself to be laid bare and exposed so they could be forgiven and brought out. Right? He doesn't see the unjustly hurt and taken advantage of in order to condemn them and to further their pain, but to take on their oppression so that liberation can be found by them. He doesn't see the one who's bound by their guilty conscience and look at them and say, your your conscience is right, but instead takes on their bondage so that they could be made free. Friend, the only one whose conscience could never bind him gave himself to be bound by sin so that we who were bound could now be made free. What good news. Amen. What good news we have in this Jesus. Friend, hear me. The extent to which you're willing to confess and repent is the extent to which you'll experience freedom and newness in your life. Because that's the simplest way to get to self-forgiveness? No, because that's the extent to which you align yourself with the grace, mercy, and new life that Jesus provides us. That's why. To the extent you're willing to confess and repent in your own life is the extent to which you'll experience the newness and the freedom and the joy that you long for. Let me ask you a question, friend. Is is your life marked by this confession and repentance? By this type of confession and repentance? Is, Is your life marked by the humility necessary to take ownership and responsibility and to confess when you are wrong, ask for forgiveness and submit your life and your heart to Jesus and say, shape me, mold me. I'm wrong. I wronged them. I wronged you. Here I am. Bear, forgive me and make me new. Is your life marked by that type of humility? It sounds hard. And for some of us, you may understand it sounds scary. It sounds terrifying. But the joy and freedom in Jesus that's promised to us is so much greater than the fear and the hardship that you're going to endure going through that confession and repentance. It's so much greater than that, that he bids us come, walk through the door, because what I have is greater than what you're sacrificing. The wholeness in life that I'm promising you is better than the dream and fantasy you live in. Right, The joy that I'm offering is better than the manufactured joy that your illusions are trying to provide for you. Come. Friends, we're not left to change ourselves. We're not left to wrestle with failures and shortcomings by ourselves, to battle shame and guilt by ourselves. We're invited to experience the new life, joy, peace, freedom that comes with Jesus in our lives. That's what we're called to. Not the opposite. That's what we're called to. To get there, though, We're called to walk through the door of confession and repentance. We're called to walk through that door. Again, it may sting, especially the confession part. I understand. It may hurt. It feels a little bit better when you're like, forgive me. And God's like, yeah. And you're like, yeah. Right. But but that first part, when it's like, here's how I messed up. I know that's scary. I know it can hurt. But that pain gives way to joy. And what joy we're promised in Christ. To conclude today, I want to to offer you some practical questions um, 
to try to help apply and guide you through kind of what we're talking about right now. Right? The first question is this. Where are you needing to take responsibility and confess sin in your life right now? Right? If you were going to take inventory of your life, where are you needing to take responsibility and confess sin in your life right now? The second question is, is a lot like this, this first question, and, and it's who do you need to confess and repent to right now? Who? Not just what, but who do you need to confess to and repent to right now? The third uh, is, is simple. What's stopping you from doing that? What's stopping you from doing the first two? Is it fear? Are you scared of what it's going to cost you to confess, to be real, to be vulnerable, to take responsibility and to ask for forgiveness? And then, friend, I want to encourage you, take heart and take bravery in that good news. That no matter how the response from the other party, you've been accepted, made new, and forgiven by a voice that's greater than the one that you're seeking forgiveness from in the other person. Right? Take bravery and take heart in that. Is it pride? Is it pride? Like, yeah, I didn't do nothing wrong. I may be at odds with this person. Or I may have messed up in this way, but I didn't do nothing wrong. I, I want to challenge you. Pride comes before the fall. Right? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Be humble. Search out where is, where is my fault in the situations that, that I find myself in? Where is my fault in it? And, and pursue reconciliation through confession and repentance. And the last one is very practical. What changes do you need to make to stop what caused this issue? What changes do you need to make to stop what caused this issue? I want you to make something very emphatically clear. Repentance isn't just an act of word, it's an act of deed. It happens in the heart and it happens in the hands. Maybe it means uh, seeking out counseling because right now you're just responding from the trauma that you've experienced in some other part of your life. And now you're just hurting other people in other situations because of what they've done. Man, God has provided us a good grace in stuff like counseling and therapy. Pursue that. Right. Maybe it means changing your routines and your practices because you find yourself more vulnerable uh, more or weaker in certain situations than in other situations, then change those. Right? What do you need to change in order to, to stop what caused the issues that you find yourself in? Friends, I'm praying uh, that this invitation to confession and repentance um, will empower the vision you have for your life. Right? Not, not shut it down, but rather empower it, fuel it. I hope it gets you excited about the potential of what God can do in your life, of how he wants to work in your life, to bring joy, to bring hope, right? To bring newness, to bring freedom. But, but it always seems like it's, it's elusive. I'm, I'm praying that this idea can get you excited about what's to come as we walk through that door of confession and repentance and enter into the joy that's promised us through uh, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, thank you uh, that as we look at the example of David in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his hurt, in the midst of his guilt, we are given insight beyond David um, to the depths of your grace and mercy and love. 
Father, you've given us the example of these individuals, yes, to help us see a portion of who we are. But more than that, Father, you give these examples so that we can look beyond them and see the character of who you are. So that as we relate to the individuals we read across your word, we would also relate to the God that redeems and restores and loves and sets free. Thank you for that forgiveness, Father. As we walk toward you in confession and repentance, we thank you for the joy and life that's been promised in your son Jesus' name, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope this message encourages you and strengthens your faith.